Hello, my name is Tim Schwartz, and welcome to the Life After Blindness Spotlight. This is the podcast where I interview someone connected to the blind and visually impaired community. Join me as we explore their journey with the life after blindness. This week, my guest is New York Times bestselling author and now director of strategic sales for IRA, Michael Hinkson. Welcome to the Life After Blindness Spotlight. I'm your host, Tim Schwartz, and I want to thank you so much for joining me once again for another interview. As always, you can get additional information as well as any links we talk about in today's show by going to the show notes. That can be found at lifeafterblindness.com. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, please send those to tim at lifeafterblindness.com. Now, today's guest is a man who's worn many hats throughout his life so far. He is a family man, salesman, motivational speaker, and advocate. He is also a New York Times bestselling author and is now the director of strategic sales for IRA. He is Michael Hinkson. Michael, thank you so much for being on the Life After Blindness Spotlight. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, as many listeners to Life After Blindness know, I always like to paint the entire picture. I overuse that phrase probably, but it's but it really gets to what I like to do on this particular episode of the podcast because I want to not just focus in on, you know, the here, the now and and maybe what uh, a person might be known for, but really kind of paint that picture and understand who they were, where they came from and and what got them to the point of where they are and really look at that and see how it comes for a full circle. So, of course then, that uh that leads us back to the beginning, because you were born blind. Uh, so let's talk about that. Uh, you were born and grew up in Chicago, correct? Right. I suppose if you're going to be grossly technical, I wasn't born blind because I was born prematurely and I was given too much oxygen, the condition known as retrolentral fibroplasia back then, now retinopathy or prematurity. So I became blind within a couple of days of being born because I was given too much oxygen 24 hours a day, which caused the retinas to malform. Um, But for all intents and purposes, uh, we could say that I have been blind my whole life, so I was born blind. Now, at that particular time in history, that was actually, unfortunately, uh, became a common thing, wasn't it? That was something that affected other people that we know, like Tom Sullivan, Stevie Wonder, and many, many other children during that time because of that particular procedure. Well, it was the era of baby boomers, and uh, although Dr. Arnold Papps at Wilmer Eye Institute, Johns Hopkins University, had already discovered the condition, medical science really didn't pay attention to it. The comment really was something like, how can you be harmed by oxygen? We all breathe it. You can't be poisoned by oxygen. I met Dr. Papps several years ago and got a chance to chat with him some and actually go speak at Wilmer Eye Institute. Um, so he he was a fascinating person to get to meet and to know. Uh, so it was a condition that was known but not accepted. So yeah, it was something that was pretty prevalent because there were a number of preemies born and they were given too much oxygen. It actually brought the average age of blind people, as I understand it, down from 67 to 65. There were so many children who were born with it from 1945 to 1955. So it was a pretty common condition. So then as that happens then within that first few days of life, you find your parents find this out 
and not being genetic, not being something that maybe could have been understood or expected, uh, kind of really coming out of the blue like that. Talk to me about your parents and, and their response and understanding to this at that time. Their response, basically, when the doctors told them that I was blind and that I should be sent to a home because no blind child could ever grow up to be a contributor to society, my parents said that's absolutely not true. <clears throat> of course they can. Uh, my father had an eighth grade education. My mother was a high school graduate. My father was self-taught and um, had gone to electrical engineering school at the Coyne School of Electrical Engineering at the time. He owned his own TV repair shop. We repaired televisions back in 1950, uh, replaced tubes and capacitors and resistors and other components and so on that people don't even understand today. Uh, and uh, in any case, so they said the doctors were wrong. So they took me home and they decided that they were going to give me every opportunity to grow up and do what I chose to do. Um, they understood that I might not do things exactly the same way. I think that was instinctive. They didn't know how it was going to happen, but they were willing to, I'm sure it was viewed as take the risk. I had an older brother, two years older, and my, uh, my parents decided that certainly I was a human being and, and could grow up and live like one. So I went home and grew up for five years. I went to kindergarten in Chicago when I was four because that's the kindergarten age back there. And by that time, the schools at the instigation of my parents and others had actually started a kindergarten class for blind kids. And there were 25, 30 of us in the class, as I recall. We actually started to learn Braille. We did other things that taught us some basic blind skills. But then after kindergarten, I moved to California because my father decided to sell his part of the shop to my uh, uncle, um, who was his partner in the whole thing. And they, um, so my parents moved to California with my brother and me. And then I went to actually went to kindergarten again because of the fact that in California, kindergarten starts when you're five. And they didn't care that I had been to kindergarten when I was four. So I didn't fail kindergarten, but I got a repeat performance. And then there was no Braille. There was nothing in Palmdale, California, where I grew up. So I went for three years without, actually four, without any of the um, tools being taught to me other than what my, uh, my mother did and my father did. I learned to do math in my head, but I didn't learn Braille or other skills, except that I did learn to travel around my neighborhood. So I learned to walk to our school, which was a few blocks away. I didn't have a cane, but I learned to listen. I learned all about travel um, in, at a very early age. I learned on my own about echolocation and using it to be able to walk or ride a bike around our neighborhood. And I did all those things. No one thought anything about it, at least in my family, no one thought about it. There were times that it drove the neighbors crazy. <laughs> I came in from riding my bike around the neighborhood one day, and about uh, the time I got in, a phone call came in to my dad, and the, the phone call really went something like this. My dad picked up the phone, and this person on the other end said, um, are you the, the father of, of, of a kid who was out riding his bike? And my dad said, yeah. And he said, well, he was out riding his bike, the neighbor did. And my dad said, well, he was. No, I'm not talking about the sighted kid. I'm talking about the younger <laughs> one, the blind kid. And my dad said, well, so, okay. He was out riding his bike. What about it? Well, he's blind, isn't he? And my dad said, well, yeah. Well, well, he was riding his bike out on the street. And my dad said, yeah. Um, did he did he hit anything? Well, no. Well, did he hurt anybody? No. Did anybody uh, hurt him? No. And my dad said, well, what's the problem? And the guy hung up. He could not mm. fathom that 
a blind person could do these things, no matter the fact that I was already doing them. And that's the problem that we face as blind people, such low expectations on the part of society, as, as the National Federation of the Blind puts it. We, we are people that have low expectations put against us. And we, as a result, oftentimes have low expectations of what we can do. That's got to change. We can do whatever we choose to do. Uh, we, like any human being, need to be realistic and recognize whether or not we have the skills to do it. But blindness isn't the problem. The problem comes from low expectations and a lack of information that we may have and a lack of education that other people have about blindness. And that is something that we have to deal with and we have to demand our place in society. Essentially, my parents kind of taught me that. Although they didn't put it in those terms in any way, it was kind of just more by example and demanding the same things of me that they would demand of my brother. But that's what we did. And unfortunately, as you say, that is the case that there are these low expectations amongst those who are not blind or not around people that are blind and visually impaired. I've had the pleasure of talking to many people who have told me their stories about that same kind of thing, where they do something that somebody just doesn't understand. I've actually had the pleasure to talk to many baby boomers, including uh, Tom Sullivan that I mentioned before, who uh, has vision loss for the same reason as you do. And he, he gave me some very similar stories when I talked to him many, many years ago, over 10 years ago, mm -hmm. about growing up uh, and having those same experiences where, you know, kids would pick on him, kids would call him names, you know, adults wouldn't understand, you know, but he would still be doing it even with their own eyes. Sighted people would see him. And, and, and in your case, you're, you know, your bike riding, they saw you do it. And yet still, it didn't matter. Didn't, it didn't matter. Didn't, they didn't understand, well, why should he, or how should he be doing this? It's just not right. It just goes back to like, you talked about with the, the, the idea back then that was very, also, you know, it's also very common about just putting a blind child in an institution. Uh, that was another common thing, unfortunately, to say, oh, well, they're blind. They're not going to amount to much. So just institutionalize them. And unfortunately, that was was the common idea at the time, though we've come a long way since then, but obviously not where we need to be. But but what I, what I think is very interesting is even during that time, your parents, of course, out of love for their son, but just the idea of saying, no. This is, we're not going to treat him any differently. We're going to raise him as we would any other child of ours. We're not going to treat him any differently, and we're going to afford him these opportunities. See, I'm not convinced that we've come all that far um, emotionally and intellectually. Well, we're not institutionalizing anymore, I guess is my point. But <laughs> as a society, we still do not accept blindness as something other than a characteristic that some of us have. We still Agreed. think that if you're blind, you're less capable than anyone else. I've made two phone calls this week where I was talking to customer service people, one at our television service provider and um, one to Amazon because uh, I needed some support. In both cases, uh, they heard a computer talking in the background and I said, um, and they asked what it was. And I said, well, I'm blind. I'm using a screen reader. Oh, I'm sorry, were the exact words in both cases. Yeah. You know, um, I don't think that we've come emotionally all that far as a society. Now, my response to the both of them was, no, really, I'm the one who's sorry because you have to put up with all the distractions of seeing and you haven't learned how to get around that. Um, <laughs> but but um, I was at an Ikea store about five years ago. And uh, my wife, who's in a wheelchair, and I, and a colleague were there. And while at the store, 
this young 13-year-old came up to me and without any fanfare just said, I'm really sorry. And I said, why? And he said, because you're blind. I didn't know the kid without knowing me or anything. Those were the first words out of his mouth at the age of 13. And I could give you even more examples. And my response I'm was, sure. and my response was, I'm sorry that you can see because you don't understand that eyesight's not the only game in town. And that in reality, blindness isn't the problem. It's attitudes like that that are. Now, I was pretty hard on him. But, you know, we've got to, and I think we as blind people need to take the lead in educating people, um, hence reasons that we we do sometimes litigate and sometimes deal with issues in, in the courts and so on. Um, I think that we have to, if we're going to, um, if we're going to make some progress and we are the ones who have to speak out, we have to do it with love. We can't do it with hate, but we've got to be the ones to speak out. And I, I was talking with someone earlier this year, I happen to be very active in the National Federation of the Blind, which is the largest consumer organization of, of blind people in the country. And this person said, but the NFB just sues everyone. And it's all about getting money for the NFB. And I said, no, it's not. Um, it, is, it is a philosophical issue. And I think that's one of the things that we need to really look at. I think every blind person ought to do all they can to help educate society by taking stance. Now, some people are going to do it more than others, and some people just don't feel up to doing that. And that's okay. I have no problem with that. But at the same time, this is a philosophical issue. And if we don't start accepting that as blind people, we really do have the right and we have to stand up for our rights, then we're not going to succeed. I want to read you something um, real quick. This is a, a, a brief statement from Jacobus Tembrook, who's the founder of the National Federation of the Blind. It's a speech that he gave at the 1967 convention of the NFB in LA. The title of the speech was, Are We Equal to the Challenge? Um, and it really is all about expressing the philosophy that we live under. And, and this is real quick. It goes like this. The blind have a right to live in the world. That right is as deep as human nature, as pervasive as the need for social existence, as ubiquitous as the human race, as invincible as the human spirit. As their souls are their own, so their destiny must be their own. Their salvation or failure lies within their own choice and responsibility. That choice cannot be precluded or prejudged. Those lives cannot be predetermined or controlled. And I think that's really what it's all about. We have the it same is. right to live in the world as anyone else. And I think that's what we really need to look at. And that's what the National Federation of the Blind, and I'm not trying to convince anyone to join the Federation, but the National Federation of the Blind, first and foremost, is a philosophy. It is a philosophy that says we have the same right. And, and my parents taught me that not knowing anything about the Federation. It was just human nature for them. So that neighbor who couldn't understand me riding a bike, even though the evidence was right there in front of them, the concept of their view of blindness was so deep that they couldn't get beyond it. Now, as you were growing up there in California and having those kind of things 
happen to you? Because I totally agree. I, I think that it's it's very important to note, like we talked about, that your your parents fought for you, and and not even knowing, like you said, you know what was going on and and how to afford you, you know what they needed to, but they learned as they needed to, just like any good parents would, uh, did their research, did their homework, found out what it was that needed to, you know, needed that you needed, uh, as a blind child growing up and fighting these types of, uh, ignorances, you know, that were going on around you. And so going forward, then I know that you had those types of experiences, but then, uh, through school, uh, you did eventually learn how to use a cane correctly. And then you were eventually able to get, uh, get a braille teacher more regularly. Is that right? Well, uh, not in that order. Well, a braille true, yeah. teacher, a resource teacher came in uh, my fourth grade year. So I got to start to use braille and braille materials became available and so on. I still walked around without a cane. We had met a woman in 1959, I believe it was, who had come to Edwards Air Force Base where my father worked. She was featured in the newspaper. She was blind and used a guide dog. And so we invited her to come to dinner and she and a friend came and I got to know Sharon and her guide dog, Nola. And that got me pretty fascinated about guide dogs. When I was going to graduate eighth grade and then go into high school, my parents and I talked about the fact that this was going to be a much bigger place and a lot harder to get around. So I really needed some additional tools. So we applied for a guide dog. And lo and behold, I got accepted. So I went to get my first guide dog, Squire, when I was 14. I didn't, I didn't start using a cane at all until I was 18 when I went to a college preparatory program at the University of California, Santa Cruz, a program that the Department of Rehabilitation here in California puts on every year or did back then, I guess it still does. But um, a mobility instructor thought they had a live one because I'd never used a cane. Within five minutes, I was using a cane. And, and I tell people all the time, I can teach anyone to use a cane in five minutes. I don't care if they're, you know, whatever. I can teach anyone right. to use a cane in five minutes. Teaching someone to have the confidence to use a cane and how to travel takes many months. It isn't using the cane. It is learning how to travel. It is learning how to listen. It is learning the skills to orient yourself. Um, again, some of the, the orientation centers in the country today call it structured discovery. Um, and it makes perfect sense. A lot of O&M people tend not to believe that um, because they're so into teaching routes. But the reality is most people travel and understand their surroundings and that helps them a lot of times solve problems when they get lost. But most blind people with traditional O&M programs don't learn that much of that. They don't learn how to say, oh, I'm not where I think I should be. How would I get here? And figure that out on their own. And the fact is, that's what we have to do. Now, of course, it's easier today because we have GPS and we have IRA. Um, but, that's, but that still doesn't preclude good mobility skills. Absolutely. And part of that journey for you, I know before, during, and after getting a guide dog, getting a cane, and uh, and learning those skills, you really, in your own way, found that you were able to map things in your mind on your own, correct? Kind of kind of finding uh, the different ways to take uh, different ways to take to get sure. to a place. Kind of a GPS in your mind, almost in a geographical, almost in geometry sort of way, finding your way around on your own, right? Kind of, which is what we all should do anyway. Sure. You know, the the problem with most of us is we're so used to doing things only one way and we get locked into certain habits that we don't look beyond it. Um, and that's why 
a lot of people have problems when they travel, whether they're blind or sighted, we get locked into one thing. And, and a lot of older people don't really like GPS. They don't like smartphones because they're locked into using old phones and they're locked into looking at maps. Well, they were moving a little bit beyond that. But using a lot of this new technology is just abhorrent to so many people. In reality, uh, it helps keep us sharp to learn this stuff. And in reality, also, we should. All this technology is all about making our lives maybe a little bit easier or making it more possible for us to have a more immediate access to information that will help us do what we already know how to do. And that's all this technology is for. And I think that's a very good perception to look at with the with all this technology, with the D GPS apps that we have, uh, you know, built into our phones, like uh, Blind Square, like Ira, like you talked about, having information provided to you some way can be very beneficial if you use it correctly. I don't know how many times I've heard a blind person say, you know, I was using this app the other day and I didn't realize that this particular restaurant was along my route or right. that I could go this other street and around back in the other way and get to the same places, you know, just a different way, maybe even faster. You know, it just, you, you don't always have that perception or that understanding. So when used in that way, these, these types of apps and things in our phones and, uh, and, and other things that we have available to us, services we have can really be beneficial if used correctly to help us get outside the box and say, okay, there is more than just one way. And there are these other things, you know, ways that we can do things and different ways we can try. Whether you're blind or sighted, you know, the dif the difference between blind people and sighted people is that information is being provided to sighted people in a visual way. We live in a vision-centric world, as Mark Riccobono said this year at his, his NFB banquet speech. We do live in a vision-centric world. And the problem with that is it's not an inclusive world. So imagine what it would be like if all the information that is presented to sighted people were immediately and automatically made available to us in some methodology, whatever it is, and I don't, I don't care what it is, but imagine that we truly had all the same information that sighted people did. It wouldn't matter if we were blind or sighted. The problem is that's not the way the world works. So products like IRA make that equal world a lot more likely and level the playing field a great deal. So there's nothing wrong with using it so long as we recognize it's an information source. And what IRA does, for example, is give us the information so that we can use the skills that we should know a lot better than we do, or a lot better than um, we have in the past. Now, before we move on too far and get out of high school and into college and beyond, let's take a moment here to take a step back because we've talked about Michael Hinkson, the blind kid, you know, growing up, let's just talk about Michael Hinkson, the kid, what were the things that interested you that were fascinating to you things that just, you know, really uh, sparked, you know, the the interest of a young Michael Hinkson. So I was always interested in electricity and electronics, and it had nothing to do with sticking my finger in a wall socket. Um, <laughs> I was always interested in radios and stuff like that. So I remember when I was like eight or nine, my uh, parents bought me for Christmas a kind of what was called a two-way space radio set. It was all done with wires, but it had an ability to send buzzes through headphones like Morse code or talk through them and so on. And then when I was 10, my parents got me a, a kit where you could build eight different kinds of radios. They had a couple of transistor and some capacitors and all that. And then the schematics were there, which were not obviously accessible to me, but my dad showed me how to put them all together. And then I remembered that so I could put them together on my own and play with them and, and made some modifications to it. And that was kind of fun. 
when I was 14, I got my first ham radio license. My dad, who by then was, of course, we were out in California, he was an electrical electronics engineer and actually the supervisor of the Precision Measurements Equipment Lab at Edwards Air Force Base that calibrated all test equipment. My dad waited to get his ham radio license so we could get it together. And he was also teaching commercial radio classes for engineers at the local community college. So I didn't take that. But anyway, we, we played with radios. Then I was also a member of the Boy Scouts and went through and got my Eagle Scout badge along with um, two palms for earning enough merit badges and also joined the Order of the Arrow and became Vigil, which is the highest level in the, uh, in the Order of the Arrow. So did a lot with scouting certainly by definition passed a signaling merit badge and, um, and had a lot of fun with that. So I, um, I, I was, was pretty active in those. Didn't go on a lot of dates and all that, really didn't uh, spend much time with girls, um, but uh, you know, that's okay. So we all, we all do what we do. And then eventually high school ended and uh, I, I went on to college. I made some good friends in high school uh, even correspond with a couple of the kids I know uh, are new back then. And also one of my teachers, uh, Dick Herbelsheimer, who we mentioned in Thunderdog, my number one you know, New York Times bestselling book, got to plug it. Um, <laughs> Mr. Oh, yeah. Herbelsheimer, Mr. Herbelsheimer turned 80 last week. And although he didn't expect me to do it, and, and when he sent the invitation to his 80th birthday party, he said, I don't expect you to come because you're so far away and all that. Well, I worked it out with his daughter and we surprised him. And when he came to pick her up at the airport a week ago, Friday, uh, guess who else w was there? We shocked the heck out of him. And so oh, I was that, there for the wow. party and all that. So we've been uh, friends for 52 years and, and I had to do it. So going through all of that with all those interests and all of that, you know, just all those experiences that you had with the ham radio and, and, and going into Boy Scouts and becoming an Eagle Scout, uh, which is people know that that's a, you know, a very long commitment that's not always so easy, but it is very fulfilling. Going through all of that, then tying that back into blindness a little bit, was there any, I'm sure there, I know, well, I know there were some, uh, what, what type of obstacles, if any, did you encounter trying to go through, you know, being in Boy Scouts in high school with teachers, trying to make things more accessible and easy for you? What, what kind of obstacles did you have to go through with that? Didn't have a lot of problems in scouting at all. Um, we had a couple times in, in high school, the superintendent decided that a guide dog shouldn't be on the school bus because that was a school rule. And we had to fight that. We went to the board of the, the school board, the board supported the superintendent, and it eventually had to go to the governor to get the school to come in compliance with a state law that already existed because the school district took the position, local rules are able to supersede state laws. I don't think so. Not especially yeah, a little backwards a there. Yeah. yeah. So we had to go through that, which taught me a couple of things, by the way, one, People are going to treat me different because I'm blind. And that was probably the first real example, real marked example. There were a couple of other things along the way, but nothing huge. That was the first example where I thought that uh, somebody was going to start to try to push me around because I was blind and that they were going to treat me different and there was nothing I could do about it. But the second lesson I learned is that you can fight City Hall and win. And I think that started to open some doors for me in terms of just my perception and being able to, to move forward, which I develop skills to do later on. That was probably the, the biggest thing in high school. The teachers were generally pretty supportive. So we had a lot of, a lot of fun with all that. And I had not a lot of really strong difficulties with um, dealing with, with the school. 
and uh, and so I had friends in the administration, people I got to know, and I learned that there's value as a different kind of student in meeting some of the school administration people. I was good friends with one of the vice principals, Rex Fisher, um, and Mr. Herbo, but Rex Fisher, who um, worked with us and supported us in the, the effort with the superintendent, but also who just kept an eye on me because I think he was a little bit fascinated and he wanted to make sure that I was getting everything I needed. And I think he wanted to learn more about me as well. I think that's important. When I went on to college, I got to know the chancellor of UC Irvine, Dan Aldrich and uh, Bob Lawrence, the dean of students and other people. And I felt that um, they were as curious about me as I was desirous to get to know them. And in part, we helped each other them getting more of an education and me making sure that I had some of the tools that I needed. I didn't have to invoke the chancellor very often. Um, actually, not at all. Other than the fact that we talked about sometimes when there were difficulties like professors not providing lists of school books that we needed for the next semester. There was a pretty strong advocate. They had created an office for students with disabilities on, on the campus. And uh, I think it was done the right way back then uh, the, the person who ran that office originally was a woman named Jan Jenkins. Then she got married, so it was Jan Jurgens. But Jan basically said, you got to get the stuff, but if you're having a problem, you come to me and I'll bring the might of the administration down to help make sure you get what you need. But if you don't learn to do this stuff now on your own um, and get help when you need it to get it done, you're never going to learn it. And that's what college is about. She didn't know much of anything about students with disabilities, but she knew that. And from that, she learned a lot about disabilities. So again, I think I was in a, a, enough environments where people made the right choices that it kind of led me down a, a good, strong path. And how lucky you were to be in that position where not just your parents, but administrators, you know, in certain times, uh, excluding the story about the dog on the bus. But I mean, you know, you had good teachers, good people, good friends around you, like I said, with your parents, that were there for you, were helpful, mm -hmm. were nurturing, even go go to bat for you. I'm glad that you brought up the story about uh, the dog on the bus. I think that's probably one of my favorite stories from Thunderdog, the way it's described in the book with your dad just night and day doing research. And you talk about, you know, his limited education, but just showing how, you know, it, it doesn't matter. He he went the bat for his son. Yep. He knew this wasn't right. He knew that this this just, you know, had to be fought. And, and he was willing to go as far as necessary yep. to prove that, no, my son has every right to have this dog. So, yeah, the way it is in the book and it's the way it's described is just, like I said, one of my favorite stories because it really shows – if you've got that good support system around you, if you've got people that care about you, they're interested and, and invested in you, and you yourself then pay attention to that and 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 go from that and learn from that, then that you can you know really find your own independence and your own strength later on as you did. Right, and and we won't tell more of that story in more detail because that way people can read it in the book. I would they can read the give book. it all away. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, please, definitely. If anybody hasn't read the book and heard that story, they they really must read that part. And Thunderdog is available anywhere books are sold. I know it's on Bard, but being a poor starving author, I always encourage people to buy it. You know, that's my job. Absolutely. So, uh, but it but it is available through through Bard as well. But don't go there. Go get, get the CDs. Yep. Go get the CDs. Go get it on Audible. I know it is available on Audible as well. So it is available on Audible. Yep. Yeah. So you know, like I said, poor starving author and Africa. My guide dog wants kibbles. So you know, we need people to buy exactly. Them. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So so going from that, then um, 
you had these interests, like you talked about in ham radio and other things, and you had, I don't know if it was much of an interest, but kind of just a ability to perceive math. I know that in high school, I believe it was your geometry teacher that at first he just wasn't quite sure how to explain geometry. But uh, once you guys got on the same page of him explaining what he was doing and what he was teaching, it really kind of took off for you. Math really became something important because then as you went to college, you got your master's degree in physics. Talk, talk to me about that interest and how that progressed. Well, it started when my uh, we were we were driving somewhere, and my parents told my brother and me. Uh, my dad said, "We're going to give you 56, 50 cents when you can recite the multiplication tables all the way through, from one times one to twelve times twelve. And I remember being in a car one day when I finally did it, and went all the way through, and I got my fifty cents, uh, and just was one of those things that happened. But I learned to do math in my head. By the time I was six, I was doing algebra in my head, and and found that it wasn't hard as long as I spent a little bit of time thinking about it. And it kind of just went from there. I, as I said, was interested in radio and electricity and electronics and electricity and magnetism and so on. So physics was kind of a natural as well um, and learned to do math with Braille along the way. Then at uh, some point discovered the Nimeth Code, which originally was a one volume book. And I got to meet and know Abe Nimeth later on. Then the Nimeth Code went up to be a four volume book because they really went in and added, he added a lot of, of, of the other things that one needed in order to do really detailed math. I'm, I'm sort of disappointed that some people with today's um, debates and things that are going on still want to use Unified English Braille for math because it does not do what the Nimeth Code does. The Nimeth Code is the only real substantive viable way to do any level of math. And anyone who tries to, to not do that is really doing a disservice to all of us. Uh, so there's my substantive thing on that. But, <laughs> but the bottom line is that um, I learned to do math and so did it all the way through, of course, high school and college as part of physics. You needed to do math for physics anyway. Well, obviously, right. Although I think too many physics instructors, professors in college, spend a lot of time doing math and so on and never get to the real philosophy and concepts of physics. And so a lot of students learn all the math, but they don't learn some of the basics. So for example, I had a professor who was a new postdoc and he was like postdocs are assigned to help create the PhD qualifying exam one year. And he did this test that had 20 questions. 16 of them were really simple questions. Questions like, you take a marble and you roll it down a hemisphere. What's the angular acceleration at the bottom of the hemisphere? That's a, well, it's not philosophical, but it's a basic conceptual question. And, um, and then there were four math questions. So all of the PhD qualifying students got all the Lagrangian mathematical questions, but failed on a lot of the more conceptual questions. And the reason I tell you that is because what happened was that um, a record number of people failed the test. So the, the bigger professors called him in and they said, you wrote too hard of a test. And he said, uh, no, I don't think so. And he pulled out two pieces of paper um, and he said, this is the qualifying exam for the PhD students. And here's my freshman classical mechanics test. You'll notice that the first 16 questions on the qualifying exam are the same questions that are on my freshman test. 
The only difference is the last four Lagrangian mathematical, um, Lagrangian dynamics and detailed classical mechanics questions. Students aren't learning the basics. They're learning the math, but not the basics. And that's something that I think is, is important to remember. So bottom line is, um, you know, I think we need to spend time learning a lot of the basics. Math isn't everything. It's a lot, but it's not everything. Absolutely. No, I agree with that. I think math is at the core of a lot of different things, uh, you know, whether it's in science, physics, you know, specifically uh, music, even uh, math can be tied definitely to to music. Uh, a lot of proof there. So, yeah, no, I absolutely agree that math is extremely important. And um, it, it is a shame that, that math, in some cases, especially for somebody who's blind, can be very difficult to grasp some of those concepts. Mm-hmm. So then going through college, I mean, it seems like because of that interest and that ability to, to do the math and uh, the interest in physics, your, you know, your degree in physics almost seems inevitable. Is that fair to say? I guess so. Certainly, not, <laughs> certainly ended up being that way. So then was it an instant transition or how did this work? Because I'm not quite sure, honestly, on how this happened. You go on to have a long career in sales. Well, what was the transition from getting a degree in physics to going in the sales? So one of the things that I also did in college was worked at the local campus radio station for more than six years and learned a lot about communications and learned a lot about talking with or to people and just learned a lot about being a part of, of campus life and so on. After college, when I was finishing up my master's degree I knew that the National Federation of the Blind was working with Ray Kurzweil, who had developed this gizmo called the Kurzweil Reading Machine. Yes, sir. The Federation decided to work with him to create a project because he needed funding to finish developing it. So the Federation purchased five prototypes of the machine, five, six prototypes of the machine that they put around the country so that blind people could actually use the machine, read with it get excited, but also help make recommendations as to what needed to be done to create a good feature set for the first production model of the machine. I was hired, and I knew that was going to happen, to be the person to coordinate all that by traveling around every day to where machines were placed, figure out where they should go, agencies and so on, and literally travel all over the country, watching people use the machine, writing training curriculum, sometimes repairing the machines, and doing everything that that needed to be done to keep the project going. Then at the end, writing the final paper with all the recommendations for the first uh, production model of the machine with all the features that we we felt needed to be in it. Then Kurzweil hired me to come into the company to do the same thing. After about six months, this was now probably about May or June of 1979, I was called into the office of the director of the vice president of marketing, a guy named Andrew Parsons, and he said, well, we have a problem. <clears throat> we're, we're announcing today that we're laying off a number of people because like a lot of engineering companies, we've just grown way too fast and we have to lay people off. And although your job is important, <clears throat> your job is not a revenue producing job and we need to do more to produce revenue. So we're gonna have to let you go. And I was thinking, I had just moved to Boston, gotten all my furniture out of storage and now you're, you're gonna tell me I gotta leave. And then after a pause, he said, unless you wanna go into sales. And I'm sitting there going, I'm a science guy, sales. (laughs) Right. And then he said, but we don't want you to sell the reading machine for the blind. We want you to sell a more commercial version that we have produced that allows people to, if they're lawyers or 
or publishers or anyone who needs to scan a lot of printed material can now do so because Kurzweil's was the first machine that truly did that with any set of type fonts or proportionally spaced material or combination on the same page. So it literally could read anything. So for lawyers putting documents into a database, uh, banks digitizing material, publishers who wanted to republish old books, whatever the case happens to be. Uh, in any case, uh, they said, we want you to sell that product. Now, the original Kurzweil reading machine, the one that Stevie Wonder bought was $50,000. And this machine that they wanted me to sell was $125,000. And if you want one, I can still probably find you one somewhere. <laughs> but I'm going to charge the same price. Anyway, um, I thought about it very seriously and very hard. It must have been about a microsecond. And then I said, okay, I'll go into sales. So I went into sales. I took a Dale Carnegie sales course, and that began a sales career. But you know what? The other side of it is going back to what I talked about earlier, whether we're educating people about blindness or whatever, I think we're always selling. I think that if you truly go back and understand what sales are all about, we're, we're always all selling in one way or another. And I think that good salespeople truly understand that what they need to do is to uh, really learn about their customers, learn what they need. Perhaps they have the right product. There are several times when I've told customers, our product won't work for you, but here's what will. Because it's my job to take the role of advisor and counselor and, and hopefully make money up at it. And um, I've got a lot of stories where I told people our product won't work, I told them what products would work. And then within a short time, suddenly we get a call saying, we've got another project. And because of all that you taught us, we know that your product is the right one. We're not even putting it out to bid. Tell us how much it is and we'll order it today. You know, that's part of what sales also has to be. And that's one of the things that I learned along the way through Dale Carnegie's course and through other kinds of things. So I took that 10-week course and then started selling full-time. And again, um, really, I'm doing the same thing. Now, instead of selling computer products, I'm selling a philosophy of life. I'm selling uh, myself as, as I think, a knowledgeable blind person and as, as a human being that truly understands something about humanity and has a lot to offer. So people are getting a different product now, perhaps, but it still sales. So that's how I got into it. Yeah, and that's a very important point to make that when it comes to sales, the best sales, I agree with you, is a situation where there's honesty, there's integrity, and there's the education. I was in computer sales for a number of years myself, and the best repeat customers I ever had were the ones that, just like you just said, if I could offer them something that was as good or better than what they were going to get somewhere else, I would do that. If I didn't have the product for them, for their needs, I would be honest about that and say, you know what, this isn't going to be quite what you want. It, it may be at least not at this price. Uh, you can, you know, here's what you're really going to need for what you're doing. And then as you say, you get that call later on saying, you know what, we did go that other way with that product. Thank you for that recommendation. But now we have this other situation where we need what you provide and we would like to buy, you know, whatever. And, uh, and so having that honesty and integrity, taking the time to educate the customer, no matter whether it's in, in that type of sales, whether it's in selling a book, a philosophy, uh, you know, just, uh, just selling intelligence about something, selling, you know, just selling uh, information. Um, I think that that's a very important, you know, point to make because that's where you're going to really do your best. Well, one of the, the things I always did when I was hiring people is I asked them, what are you going to be selling for me? And I only had one person who really came out and said, the only thing I can really sell for you is myself and my integrity. 
your products are stuff. But what I have to offer is my word and my reputation. Uh, and that's all that really is important because if I don't have a good one and I can't be trusted by people, then nothing else is going to work. And he was absolutely right. And that was the answer I always looked for when I asked people what um, they were going to sell for me. But I think it, it's easy to say uh, it's harder to prove. And so don't say it unless you mean it. I remember uh, I was I had owned my own company after Kurzweil was purchased by Xerox. I started my own company because I couldn't get a job. The unemployment rate was over 70% among employable blind people, according to the Social Security Administration. And it goes back to all the attitudes and philosophies that we talked about, right? And so I um, um, started my own company because I couldn't get a job. Xerox laid off all of the salespeople who were pre-Xerox working for Kurzweil. So I wasn't alone in that. Um, it was a mistake on their part because they destroyed the culture of the company and a very successful enterprise by doing that. Too many corporations do it, however. In any case, um, I, I owned my own company for four years selling computer-aided design systems to architects. Talk about a product that a blind person shouldn't be able to have anything to do with. It's as graphic as it comes, but I didn't need to work the product. I needed to know how to work the product. I needed to understand the product so I could help people. I had other people that we brought in who could work the product and do demos, but I could talk to architects about it as well. But I decided eventually to sell the company and go back into the workforce. And so my wife and I were talking one day. I had met and married my wife, Karen, by then. We got married in 1982. And then in 1989, I was doing this job search again and wanting to go back into the workforce. And we talked about whether I should put in my cover letter that I was blind or not, because typically if you say you're blind in a cover letter, then they're not even going to answer you. If you don't say you're blind, they might answer you and they might invite you for an interview because they don't know. And then when you come, they're ticked, right? Because, oh, you didn't tell you we're blind and blind people can't do this. And I've seen both of those in my life experiences. But my wife said, look, you're the one that always said that in a Dale Carnegie sales course, the one that you took, you said the most important thing you learned out of that was turning liabilities into assets, which is, of course, what we talked about before, where the product didn't do what I needed it to do. But by um, being honest and telling the truth and not selling them something they couldn't use, it was something where we were able to turn it around and it became very um, very valuable for us, right? They bought our product for other exactly. stuff because I educated them and took the time. Anyway, she said, you're the one that always said turn liabilities into assets. And immediately I had this bright idea and I went off and I wrote my cover letter for this job. And in the cover letter, the last few paragraphs said something like, the most important thing that you need to know about me when you're considering me for this job is that I happen to be blind. As a blind person, I've had to sell all of my life just to be successful. I've had to sell to convince somebody to let me buy a house. Um, I've had to sell to convince people to let me take my guide dog um, into public places. I've had to sell to be able to take my dog on an airplane. So I've had to sell to do most anything that I wanted to do. So when you're hiring somebody for this job, do you want to hire somebody who goes home at the end of the day after selling for eight or 10 hours and doesn't even think about it anymore and who just considers sales a job? Or do you want to hire somebody who truly understands sales for the science and art that it is and sells all the time just as a way of life? And that was the letter that I sent. And that 
was the exact part of the letter, as they told me later, that piqued their interest and invited me for an interview, and that's how I got the job. And I believe that every job is a sales interview, period. It is a sales presentation, and that we as blind people need to internalize and understand how to turn that perceived liability, which isn't one, but to turn that perceived liability of blindness into an asset. I did it with the letter, and I do it all the time. Um, there are a lot of ways that I have advantages as, as a blind person because I can and have learned to talk to people. Um, something that I tell every salesperson that I ever hire, you're new here, you're new at this product, play the new card for the next year. When you're talking to customers, well, I haven't been here that long, so I really don't know a lot about you. Tell me something about what, what your issues are. Um, let me help you by teaching me something about you. There's nothing wrong with that. People like nothing better than to talk something about what they want and what they need. And, and over the years, I've, I've also taken that to other levels. So now when I, when I sell, when I'm talking to people about speeches, speeches and speaking to their organizations, I'll say things like, so what are your core values? What is it you're really looking for um, in a speaker? Why is it that you, you think that I'm valuable to you? Um, I don't know you very well. Help me out and teach me how I can best help you. And people want to do that. And that's just as true in anything else in any kind of sales position. So that resume that got you that job, was that the particular job that you were in all the way up through working in the World Trade Center? Or was that before that? It led to that um, because the company that hired me in 1989 wanted me to move to New York in 1996. We did. Uh, I worked there for another year. And then one of the companies... Um, that we had interactions with hired me and and recruited me away from the first company. And then two years later, another company did the same thing again. And that was the company that I worked for in the World Trade Center because I was um, working for this organization that manufactured products that um, could be used in the World Trade Center and, and in the surrounding areas to backup computer data. So the company, the last company I worked for was a manufacturer that created products that would back up computer data and allow people to take recordings of that data on very high density tape cartridges that held anything from oh, um, 30 um, gigabytes to then going up to um, later 160 gigabytes and, and higher on one tape cartridge. Now, of course, we do a lot of it on disk. But anyway, we sold the products that companies connected to their network to do the backups. And then they would take the products, the, the recordings off-site as the Security Exchange Commission, for example, required of Wall Street firms. They had to take the data and put it off-site for seven years. So I opened the office for this company in the World Trade Center in August of 2000, actually. So is it fair to say then that few paragraphs of information about your blindness and selling not just the product, but selling yourself, not only got your foot in the door of one company, but as you said, you were lured into the other. So sure. that philosophy, that idea of saying, you know, I'm not just this blind person that can sell, I can sell, you know, whatever I need to sell. And here's why that really, that philosophy really helped in, in, shining a light on you and having people say, okay, blind or not, we don't care. We want this guy. Right. I am a human being 
who happens to be blind who knows how to sell. I believe blindness is a characteristic and we need to really put it in that parlance. Pure and simple, everyone has characteristics, everyone has strengths, everyone has weaknesses, and um, we are no different. Blindness, however, is perceived as something that it's not, and that's what we have to deal with. So at this point then, where we've come to is very important because I think you would even say this is a major transition, although you've had several transitions as we've talked about so far in your life, just from, from school age and different cities you've lived in, schools and uh, you know your degree and all these things that you've gone through and switching from physics to sales, all these different transitions. But you're about to have a bigger one because in less than a year of running and opening this office at the World Trade Center, a very major event happened in the history of not just the United States, but the world on, of course, 9-11 of 2001, when the terrorist attacks happened on the World Trade Center. So talk to me about that period of time and, and uh, you know, kind of what was going on around that time. You were, you were running this office. Uh, you were the regional sales uh, director, I believe you said, uh, for the company. And then, you know, that, that morning happens. Talk to me about that, that whole uh, situation. So we had been in the office 13 months when that occurred. We had arranged to conduct some sales seminars for some of our reseller partners. They were going to be in the building that day. Um, the office had gotten set up the year before. We had uh, a number of salespeople. We had support people and an administrative person helping in the office as well. It was a fully functioning office with a full demo facility um, with all the components that that uh, quantum manufacturer that we that we had available. And so there we were on September 11th, getting ready for the seminars. I had arrived at about 740 in the morning. Uh, somebody from the Port Authority cafeteria had brought in breakfast that we had ordered for the early arrivals and so on and for snacks for the first group. We had 50 people coming to one of four seminars in the course of the day. My colleague, David Frank from our corporate office was there. Uh, our corporate office was back in California. David's job was to talk about pricing and so on. And my job was to be the on-site contact who would be helping these people to sell. So I needed to demonstrate that I was a value add to them. So I was going to be doing the basic seminars, talking about the electronics of the, com the products, the components, um, the technology, and teaching all that stuff to them. And then saying, and I'm available to do this for your customers. So David and I were just finishing up some preparations when the aircraft hit the building 18 floors above us, um, and it hit on the other side of the building. So we had no clue what had happened other than the building, like a spring, started to tip over and then it came back. If you take a spring and put it on a table and hold it down at the bottom and then push the top, that's literally what the building did. We moved about, wow. we moved about 20 feet. That's the best way to describe it. We... Um, one of the things that I had done was to learn how to travel around the World Trade Center. I needed to know where everything was, not to be escorted there, but to do it on my own. You know, if I didn't know how to do that stuff, how would I look to my employees if we needed to go somewhere? Oh, you got to lead me because uh, I can't do it myself. Not acceptable. It wouldn't be acceptable for anyone else. It shouldn't be acceptable for me. If I have to do extra work to make that happen, like wandering around the World Trade Center, sometimes literally getting lost and asking questions and then saying, no, I don't want you to take me there. Tell me. Sometimes teaching sighted people how to give directions. But um, <laughs> learning. I've been there. I understand. <laughs> learning the entire complex and also learning about what to do in case of emergencies, because I needed to know that because I was the leader of the office. So I learned all of that. 
And also almost every day I went in, I remember thinking at one time or another, what am I going to do if there's an emergency today? Am I prepared to get out? And until I could say yes, I wasn't happy. And then when I did learn to say yes, and because I thought I knew what I needed to know, I still learned more. But um, we got our guests out because that's what we needed to do. The building doesn't behave like it did that day. And I, my colleague David saw fire and smoke above us. So we got our guests to the stairs and they went out. Then we swept the offices. Then we went to the stairs and we started down. And I won't go into a lot of detail about the story only because it is in, in the book. And um, it, it's um, and also there are a number of speeches on YouTube that, so people can go hear it. It's not that I don't want to talk about it. It's just I think it's more important to talk about something else, which is I survived because I learned how to. Yes. I survived because I did the alternative technique process of knowing what I needed to know to be at least on an equal footing with other people. The advantage I had is I didn't need to learn to read signs. Um, I didn't need to know how, I didn't read signs anyway, so I couldn't read signs. None of that stuff is in Braille. And if we were in an environment where the room was filled with smoke or whatever, and we didn't have that, but other people would have been lost. Whenever I fly, one of the first things I do when I go on to an aircraft and get to my seat uh, just because you never know when the airlines are going to change it is, I'll ask a flight attendant, where are the overwing emergency exits? Because I know they're going to be roughly in the middle of the aircraft. Oh, well, you don't need to know that because you're closer to the front. And if there's an emergency, we're going to take you out through the front door. No, 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 no. You're not going <laughs> to take me anywhere. And what if the front door is is damaged so you can't get me out that way? Where are the overwing exits. And sometimes I have to fight pretty hard to get it. But you know, the real reason I have to do that is they don't know. Right. They cannot tell you the row numbers. Um, eventually, I'll get them to count. Um, and so far, and I fly a lot on American, they, um, they haven't changed the configurations very much. But, you know, it's important to know that. And they should really make those announcements about row numbers as a part of their regular flight briefings. But they don't. They say, well, but the configurations change a lot. That's a bunch of bull. The flight attendants um, aren't encouraged to do that, and the airlines are too lazy to make them. Um, and they want to talk about safety, then announce the rows uh, where the exits are. I was on one Southwest flight, and this guy gets up, who's a flight attendant, and he starts to talk. And he was really great. He said, now, you know, there are 50 ways to leave your lover, but there are only six ways to leave this aircraft. And if you want to know what they are, <laughs> listen to me. And, and then he proceeded to tell people. It was great. Yeah. Um, and, and people should. You don't just say go to the overwing exits. You go to the overwing exits on this this um, 737 at rows 14 and 15, you know, and, you know, that's easy to do. But I make sure I know all of that information. And when the flight attendants tell me they're going to get me off, one of the first things I say to them is, no, I guarantee you, I'm going to be one of the first people off this aircraft and I'll catch you when you come down the slides. Uh, and they think it's cute, but they don't understand that is true. Um, I know something about how to react in an emergency. I know myself. And I think I can say that with, with um, some level of knowledge. But I think that's important for all of us to do as blind people. We need to learn to know. We don't get to rely on the signs, and I don't want to rely on the signs. Even if I could see today, I'd want to make sure I had the information. That's my mindset today, based on being a blind person who's been alive for 67 years. So, I think it's very true that whether you're blind or sighted, again, it goes back to 
selling yourself and explaining to people, this is my position, this is where I'm coming from, and in a way educating them, no matter whether you're blind or sighted, you're telling them, this is my perception, this is where I'm coming from, and I need this information. doesn't matter what your perception is of whether I need it or not. I want to have this information and, and, uh, and this is necessary for me. And I, and I agree that that's a very important point to get across. The other thing I do, I, I do agree with you about the nine 11 story. It is definitely available in Thunderdog. Again, I encourage everybody who hasn't read it, read it. If you've already read it, read it again. Um, I've read it several times and I, and, I, and also running with Roselle, which is my other book that I was going to mention that yeah. growing up and, and it also talks about Roselle growing up and how guide dogs are trained and a lot of the things that I learned. But I think that, um, you know, it's it's important to really deal with the philosophical issues, uh, again, of blindness. And it, it it's talked a lot about in, in both books, but that's what I really wanted to focus focus on today. And what we're talking about is, is the attitudes. You know, sighted people have access to all that information about emergency floor lighting until it doesn't work, um, or where the exits are located, which is great unless you're in a smoke-filled cabin, which happens from time to time. So the problem is they should do the same thing, but they don't. And a lot of blind people just figure, I'll rely on the people around me. Don't. Um, You should take control over your own destiny, which means you should know what to do in the case of an emergency, like if you're traveling or on on a train what emergency processes are there on a bus, whatever. If there are emergency things, you should know about them. And sometimes there aren't a lot, but but you need to take control over your own lives. Don't rely on others. It's not being arrogant to do that. It's that we have to know because that's the only way that we have the greatest odds of being able to deal with whatever comes along. Absolutely. Very well said. Now, before we move on from the 9-11 story, there's a, a comment and a question that I do want to uh, ask you about pertaining that out if I could. The comment is that, especially in the book Thunderdog and Running with Rizal, people will truly see the wonderful teamwork that's involved in having, not just having a guide dog, but specifically that day for yourself and the teamwork that involves yourself and Rizal and helping not just each other, but then being able to be there uh, for moral support for other people and just the the wonderful ability of a guide dog and yourself to get through that. And um, I always thought it was beautiful poetry in a way of why it's called Thunderdog. And I'll leave it at that for people to read the story and understand where Thunder comes into it and then why that's so important with her being yeah. so calm, getting out of the building in that situation. I just think it's it, it was a very, you know, uh, you know, very good idea to, to name it that way. But, but the question I have for you about that, cause I, I really encourage people to read it for just, if nothing else, the teamwork aspect, the guide dog aspect is very beautiful and you'll learn something every time you read the book. But the question I have is, is something that always hits me and quite honestly, always brings a tear or more to my eye when I read this passage is if, if you couldn't, or if you wouldn't mind talking about just a little bit, as you guys are going down the stairs in the world trade center, I don't remember what part of the of the building you were at at this time but it was when the firefighters the the support started coming up the stairs and you make a comment about how they were petting Roselle and loving on Roselle as they were going up to do their best to save people and you knew in the back of your mind well I'll let you tell it what what was that experience like and what was your thought process not from just being a guide dog owner and what you usually would say to a person but then the thoughts you had in that moment 
Well, it was specifically one person. It was the first guy who insisted that he wanted to uh, make sure that we got down by sending somebody with me to get down the stairs, even though we had already come down from the 78th floor to the 30th floor. And we had discussions about it. And he kept saying he wanted to send someone. And I said, look, I got my guide dog. And he said, I'm going to have somebody go with you. And I said, you don't need to. Um, and he said, when I said, I've got my guide dog, what a lovely dog. And he starts petting Roselle. And it wasn't the time to give him a lecture about blindness isn't the problem. And you don't pet a guide dog uh, when they're in harness. It wasn't the time to do that. And there was a reason that I was specifically resisting his efforts. And I finally had to play the sight card. I said, I got my friend David with me here. David and I are walking down the stairs. We're fine together. Even though David was actually a floor below us most of the time, he was standing with me at that point. Um, then the, the, the guy finally said, OK, well, if you're with him, then, then it's OK. See, again, the same thing. You can't get lost on stairs and you can't get any more hurt <laughs> on stairs than a sighted guy, right? Right. But anyway, so um, he went up the stairs. He pet Roselle the last time. And as I tell people, that was probably the last unconditional love he ever got in his life. But the reason that I really opposed it, and the reason I didn't want his assistance was twofold. One, it would have been more of a problem than it was worth to have somebody grabbing my arm and, and tugging me this way and that way to go down the stairs like they were most likely to do had it happened too many times with sighted people who think that they know more about how I can walk and need to walk than I do. Um, but the other is they're a team. Those firefighters had to carry their equipment up the stairs. I knew it. They were carrying big packs on their backs. They had oxygen cylinders, fire axes, and so on. And if somebody were tasked to take me down, they would have had to either just take that equipment down the stairs with them or divvy it up, right? Either way, it would have taken a person out of their position and not knowing how serious things were. I didn't want to hear on the news later that somebody was injured because their colleague was taking a blind man down the stairs, especially when there was no need for it. And so um, I was very concerned about teamwork. And I talk a lot about trust and teamwork and, and actually do uh, talks and, and lessons on teamwork and trust and dealing with change. Those are some of the talks that I give. So it was important to do that in order to let him go up the stairs and keep him empowered to do it. And he wasn't gonna add value to helping me get down the stairs. So we got through it and we went on. Absolutely. You definitely did get through it and went on. And I just always find that a beautiful, although be it sad moment in the book, just the idea of, you know, I'm, I'm here I am with my team, with my dog, with my friend, with these other people whom I don't even maybe even know. We're trying to do our best to get out of here. I'm okay. Treat me like any other sighted person here. My team's in place. At the same time, you're thinking, as you said, it's not the best time to really talk to this gentleman about, uh, you know, guide dog etiquette. I'll let it go because as you said, this is yeah. the last unconditional love he he may have had because they obviously didn't get to come back down. Uh, and so just every time I've read the book, it just, it gets me every time. And when people ask me about the book, it's one of the passages I tell them about, like you, you have to read this, the, this, the overall message of uh, different facets of messages that are there uh, is well worth the read. So, so again, we, we encourage everybody to read that because what happened then is of course you get out of the building safely, thank God. And, uh, and then it was about 10 years when you wrote or before the book came out, really when you, when you right. released Thunderdog and then a few years later uh, when you had the follow-up with running with Roselle, was there a reason why you waited the 10 years to have that come out or what, what was the, what was the reason behind that? Um, well, really, the um, 
the thing is, we, I tried to work on it for a number of years, but um, it was a while before the, the right combination hit. Susie Flurry came along and we decided to work on it together. I had a lot of notes. George Berger, the publisher of the AKC Gazette, urged me as early as 2002 to write a book and we started working on it. But um, the agent that, that he worked with wanted me to write a business book and I wanted to write a general purpose book that everyone would read, not just a business book. Um, and, and it just didn't come together. And then finally it, it did when Susie uh, came along. Susie was writing her own book with stories of a number of dogs and she wanted to, uh, to put uh, Roselle's story into her book. But after hearing my story, we talked for a couple of hours, kind of there was this pause and she said, have you ever considered writing your own book? So I told her how we had sort of started to work on it, but it just wasn't coming together. And she said, well, I wanna help and I know the best agent in the country. And um, we, we finally got the whole thing together and um, we, we wrote Thunderdog in 2010 into 2011 and then it was published. Um, our agent, Chip McGregor was the person who actually put the, uh, the the sale together with Thomas Nelson Publishing. Thomas Nelson is now, of course, part of HarperCollins, mm -hmm. but um, he he actually got the contract and so on and, and made it happen. So now before we jump way ahead into the future and talk about what your current involvements are, I do want to ask you about the release of the book and the whirlwind that your life went on there uh, with public appearances and speeches and interviews and all that. What was that experience like for you? Well, it was August of 2011, when Thunderdog was actually published, we saw as early as June Amazon expressing an interest in the book um, and also the major publication for book uh, sellers and the, the book industry, Kirkus, did a review of Thunderdog, which was extremely favorable. So we thought that it would, would be a book that people would be interested in, but August 2nd, it was published. And then on the 11th of August, I got a call from the people at Thomas Nelson Publishing and um, they were kind of coy about it. They said, we need you to sit down. We've got to tell you something and we would rather that you sit down for it. And they were sounding all sad and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. And it just didn't ring. But oh, no. but I said, well, my wife, Karen's sitting down. She's in a wheelchair. So they said, no, you got to sit. I, and they wouldn't even laugh. So finally, I went and I sat down. I said, okay, I'm sitting down. The next thing is number one or, or in its first week out, Thunderdog is on the New York Times bestseller list. It wasn't number one that week, but it did get to be. So um, the, the biggest whirlwind actually came after September 11th, though, when the media heard about the story and, uh, and all that. But then Thunderdog got to be number one. Again, a lot of interviews and, and so on, and a lot of discussions about the book. We did a tour in, in September. Um, I was in New York and some other places as well and did some other speaking. And um, we were we were pretty excited about it. Um, and Thunderdog has been selling ever since. It continues to to sell. Um, we're, we're hoping sometime in the near future will be a movie. And that's all I can say about that at the moment. But we're we're working on a number of projects with it and it will continue to be part of what we do. It's had to have been definitely a an experience and a half to go from that kid, blind kid riding his bike all around the neighborhood, annoying the neighbors to, you know, appearing on talk shows and, you know, meeting celebrities and Larry King and all these different, you know, shows you were on talking about the book and just that notoriety uh, from something that, you know, like you say, is just that teamwork of just doing what you knew how to do and getting yourself out of that building. And, and here you are with the number one best-selling book and meeting all these people and doing all these interviews. And uh, 
uh, I bet that that was definitely, you know, definitely experience to be had. It's an experience. And, you know, after September 11th, um, Guide Dogs for the Blind had a new CEO, Bob Phillips, and he invited me to come and join the staff. Um, we always wanted to move back to California, even when we first moved to New York. Uh, and Guide Dogs offered that opportunity and they said, we'd like you to come and help our development effort and fundraising. And at the same time, we'd also um, like you to go ahead and continue your speaking. And we worked out a, an arrangement and so on. So I joined Guide Dogs and I did that for six and a half years. And then a new CEO came on and she said, well, you know, 9-11 is not a, a big thing anymore. Nobody's really interested in your story. So we're going to phase out your job and uh, we'll offer you another one, but we don't want you to go out and travel and speak anymore. And, and clearly it was, uh, it was a different environment. And, and I won't spend a lot of time on that other than to say I chose to, to um, when the job was phased out, go off and, and continue to speak. Um, and there was so little interest in September 11th after that, that number one New York Times bestselling Thunderdog was very visible in 2011 and, and beyond. So, you know, clearly the interest was still there, um, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, this individual made the, the choices that she did. She was not at the school very long, but still things happen. Um, and so after that, I just continued to travel and speak. I started the Michael Hingson Group, Inc., and have been doing, doing this ever since. Um, traveling and speaking and, and, as I said, selling life philosophy, as, as we talked about, as well as um, helping to, to motivate people and, and consulting on things such as teamwork and trust and those kinds of things. And I've been doing that, and I think having a lot of fun doing it. And, and if, it, if it adds value to people's lives, if it gets them to learn more about blindness, if it helps them learn how to move on from an unexpected change in their lives, then it's worth it. If I'm able to help and make things happen, then um, you know, I'm, I'm glad to do it. So have a lot of fun doing it. And it uh, keeps me out of trouble, mostly. <laughs> mostly, right. Absolutely. Well, the last thing I was going to say about Thunderdog is I am glad to hear that there is going to maybe potentially someday be a movie. I've always said that there should be, so I won't press you on that as much as I would love to, um, but I won't. But I'm glad to hear that there's the thought, at least, of that, because I think it would make a fantastic movie uh, and would be very poignant and uh, something that people should see on screen. If they haven't read it, at least see it on screen. Um, but, but back to what you are talking about with your... Uh, with your own group, with your own business and, and helping to motivate people and talk with people. Uh, you know, as you know, if we, as we've talked about, that's, you know, one of the purposes of what I do with this podcast is to educate, not just sighted or not just blind people, but sighted people as well to, to, to truly say there is and can be that life after blindness, whether it was from birth, whether it was later on, uh, the, there are opportunities. There is things that we can do and we can accomplish being blind being blind, uh, as I was once inspired by back to, it always goes back to Tom Sullivan, uh, and yourself, you both have been an inspiration to me, but as Tom Sullivan has said in his speeches, and I believe you've said this as well, I think, um, that, you know, not to look at it as a disability, not to look at being disabled, but look at being an enabled. And the first time I ever heard him say that and, and heard others since say that really inspired me in that idea of, yeah, why, why are we looking at us being disabled? Why are we not enabling ourselves, looking at the positives of things. Yes, we can have negatives. There are going to be negatives, you know, with people with blindness, you know, there might be depression, there might be anxiety, there might be issues that you go through the battles, the fights, like we've talked about with, you know, fighting the school board, fighting, fighting, you know, different, uh, different people and jobs to, to really sell ourselves as we've talked about. 
Um, but that being said, let's look at the positives, what we can do, how we're enabled to do it. And you've really done that with, uh, with your group and, and what you've done uh, since writing Thunderdog, haven't you? We tend to like to put labels and, and pigeonhole everyone into some sort of category. And disability is, is an unfortunate term. You know, I don't know what term to use. Um, it, it doesn't really matter. Right. What matters more is that we get beyond that and stop trying to, to label people um, and not recognizing that maybe our view is, is something that needs to be broadened or expanded. Um, you know, and, and um, now, now, in addition to speaking, um, as we've discussed in a previous podcast, I work for IRA, A-I-R-A Technologies, and um, I was hired to be involved with corporate and strategic sales and help in other areas. There have been a lot of discussions about IRA. So, you know, IRA is this product that uses smart glasses um, and uh, an app to reach an agent who can provide any visual information that otherwise is not available to me, as it's described IRA as a visual interpreter. Um, and I think it's a, a very important product. There have been a lot of discussions on the IRA list about do we get too dependent on a product like IRA? So we can get dependent on a lot of things. We get dependent on cell phones. We get dependent on computers. We are so dependent on a lot of our technology. But in reality, those of us that recognize that our skills and our own inner strength come first and that all of these products simply augment our ability to access and improve our skills. IRA is a way for me to get access to information that otherwise is not accessible to me, but that's what it is. Um, and it does it in a very dramatic way with trained agents that allow me to get information that I won't get with any other technology, including any of the other free apps out there because they don't describe as well. They don't give the same kinds of access that I need to be a successful individual on a daily basis. But IRA has taken a unique approach that allows that. At the same time, we need to all recognize that it still gets back to our own basic skills and our own life experiences and our own life philosophy that come first. And it doesn't matter whether it's IRA or using the internet, using an iPhone or whatever the case happens to be, it still gets back to our skills and our intent to continue to learn and move forward with all of that. So when we label people, yeah, it does get to be a real problem sometimes. But you know what? It ultimately is just what it is. Um, and I haven't come up with a word that really works other than to say blindness is a characteristic. It's uh, what Ken Jernigan said in the NFB years and years ago. It's a characteristic. It's no different than having a different skin color than someone else um, or being tall, being left-handed or whatever the case happens to be. So if people want to pigeonhole, that's great, except don't do it in a way that you um, try to force limitations on me that don't exist. I think it's exactly right. And it's funny you say left-handed because included in Thunderdog, and I forgive me, I'd forget the name of the gentleman who gave the speech, but there's that speech about- uh, Kenneth Jernigan, it's a left-handed left dissertation. dissertation. Exactly. And I love that my mom is left-handed and I had her read that. Obviously her having a father who was blind and now myself as her son who is blind. And so just as a person of left of being left-handed, she, she thought- you know, how funny, but also how poignant. And uh, so again, something, some other good reason to read Thunderdog, to read that dissertation, because uh, it, it really opens your eyes to the idea of, like you just said, blindness is a part of who I am. It, it's just a characteristic and uh, it, it doesn't define who I am. 
the left-handed dissertation in the in the audio version, not the Bard version, but in the audio version on Audible and so on, is the original speech that oh, interesting. Kenneth Jernigan gave, and I was actually blessed to be able to hear that live, and it was just one that always stuck with me. But it is uh, the original speech is there, which is really cool to hear live. It is really, really cool to hear. Absolutely. I've played it for many, many people at groups uh, and seminars that I've been a part of or, or you know, meetings at associations for the blind that I've attended. I've played it for many people and it is a, you know, eye opening moment, if you will. I mean, people just really, you know, really get it when they hear that. So I think it's, it's a very important uh, speech to have you know, read or listened to. Um, <clears throat> now, that being said, we were talking about Ira. And uh, as you mentioned, we do talk about that uh, a little bit more detail, a lot more detail in an episode of Life After Blindness. So people can listen to that when it is available at uh, lifeafterblindness.com slash 16. That'll be episode number 16 of the podcast. So we won't go too much into what Ira is, what it does here, because they can listen to that there. And, and, and again, if anybody doesn't know at this point, I don't know where they've been because Ira has been the talk of the town for uh, the blindness community for quite some time now. But well, I will ask you, pick up on something that we talked about in that discussion about, um, you know, what Ira is hoping to do going forward. What is, what is the goals of Ira going forward? I think the goals um, of Ira in general are to become even better at providing information and providing more information and trying to utilize technology vis-a-vis -vis artificial intelligence, hence the AI part of Ira, to provide more of that so that people have more immediate access than just even using an agent, which is not to say that using an agent is bad, but rather to augment the process. So for example, Ira announced that the KNFB reader was going to become part of the Ira package. The National Federation of the Blind and Ira came to an agreement on that. And so soon the reader will be part of that system, which means I can just, uh, in whatever way it actually happens, just have the camera take a picture of a page and read it, assuming it will. And if it can't, then I've always immediately got access to an agent who can read that page, whatever the case happens to be. I think we'll see a lot of different kinds of things developing, whether it be recognition of objects so that when I'm um, in my kitchen, I can um, tell Ira I'm looking for the keys on the floor and look down and, and if it sees the keys and it recognizes the keys, so I don't even have to call an agent to do that. Uh, or if that doesn't work, then I can always bring the agent in. But I think that we're going to see a lot of change over the next several years of how IRA will become even more of an integrated process to allow me to use the power of computers as well as the power of, uh, of a, a person who obviously has human intelligence to give me the best possible access to information. Very good. That's very good to hear. And I'm glad to hear you know, that Ira has that commitment to AI and to be able, being able to provide as much of that information you know, through the service as possible to us. Um, I do want to mention that this interview will be available as a podcast prior to September 12th. And we talked about in that other interview about something that Ira is going to do to help educate those who still have questions. You want to talk to me a little bit about that? We're going to do a conference call um, on the 12th of September to educate people about IRA and exactly what it is. So it's a call intended to be for uh, new people who don't know anything about IRA. What it will be is, is a call that will start about 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time, and it will be a way for people to learn about it. And hopefully it'll be the first of 
many such calls to do that. So we're pretty excited about what it could can do. The idea is that people can call in and, and we'll tell them anything they want to know about IRA. We'll do a discussion about it. People will be able to ask questions. They'll be able to talk to an agent as well and ask questions. And um, if, I, if I'm the one that is invoking IRA and calling the agent, which is probably what we'll do, as I, as I joked on the, the past podcast, people will find out what my office looks like, which uh, hopefully won't be too embarrassing. <laughs> but if people want to come to the seminar, um, the teleconference, 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and everything in between, they call area code 605-468-8004, and then the access code is 329-906, pound sign. So 605-468-8004, and then the access code is 329-906, pound. Very good. I think it'll be a really good initiative on Ira's behalf to help those, like you said, that just aren't familiar with it or just have other questions about it. And I will make sure to put not only Ira's website address, but as well as the phone number and extension in the show notes for this episode, as well as the other one where we talk about it. I will make sure to add that. So if anybody didn't catch those numbers, uh, you can look for it on the show notes at lifeafterblindness.com. Now, as we're wrapping up here, Michael, I do want to talk with you um, next about your future. So currently right now you are uh, in sales with Ira, still going strong with your own uh, endeavors, I'm sure. So what is it that uh, you'd like to see yourself doing going forward? What are your goals past Ira, past all this uh, or, or including this? Well, I, uh, I hope to continue to work with Ira for, for many years and also to continue to travel and speak and, um, and motivate people. Uh, and just in general, I want to help people understand blindness isn't the end of the world, no matter what age you become blind. That in reality, um, blindness isn't the problem. The thing that holds you back are the low expectations that you have about yourselves and also the low expectations perhaps that people have about you, all of us as blind people. So you've got to start by recognizing you have the choice as to whether you want to continue to live or not. And I don't care whether it's someone who is born blind, who's 20, or who's 60 or 80 or whatever. I know blind people of all ages who, when they realize blindness isn't the problem, do just fine. Thank you very much. Exactly. Very well said. Now, as I'd like to ask any guest I can get a hold of, uh, something that I have found has been a very interesting question, uh, talking about positivity and, and inspiration and uh, you know just getting to know people and, and their experiences. I like to ask the question because of my blindness, fill in the blank. And so for anybody not familiar with this, it's been something that I've been doing on the podcast the last many episodes, asking people to submit their stories that have been positive, inspirational, things that have happened to them that may not have otherwise happened if they hadn't been blind. And so to answer that question because of my blindness, Michael, do you have something specific that you would say because of my blindness, I something? I think because of my blindness, I was in the World Trade Center on September 11th. Um, I would say because of my blindness, I have learned that I need to be the one to take control of my life and to know all that I need to know in order to take good control of my life and truly live. I've learned that I shouldn't take things for granted a lot of times that I think we all too often do. I think because of my blindness, 
I've developed a skill set that teaches me to listen and has taught me that I can also be a contributor in, uh, in the human race. And I intend to continue to do that. And, and I know we're wrapping up and I want to read something else that I'd like to contribute to the podcast. Please go ahead. Um, I mentioned Jacobus Tembrick earlier. He was the founder of the Federation and really was the philosopher. One of the favorite passages that he ever wrote comes from a 1952 speech that he gave in San Francisco that talks about blindness. It's a speech entitled Within the Grace of God. And um, I want to read some paragraphs from that speech because I think it summarizes what we should view about blindness, about each other. And I think it summarizes a lot of what we've talked about today, especially where we talk about labeling people as people with disabilities and so on. So these are the last two paragraphs. And remember, this was delivered to a banquet of over a thousand blind people in July of 1952. And it goes like this. In the 16th century, John Bradford made a famous remark, which has ever since been held up to us as a model of Christian humility and correct charity, and which you saw reflected in the agency quotations I presented. Seeing a beggar in his rags creeping along a wall through a flash of lightning in a stormy night, Bradford said, but for the grace of God, there go I. Compassion was shown. Pity was shown. Charity was shown. Humility was shown. There was even an acknowledgement that the relative positions of the two could and might have been switched. Yet, despite the compassion, despite the pity, despite the humility, despite the charity, how insufferably arrogant, there was still an unbridgeable gulf between Bradford and the beggar. They were not one, but two. Whatever might have been, Bradford thought himself Bradford and the beggar a beggar, one high, the other low, one wise, the other misguided, one strong, the other weak, one virtuous, the other depraved. We do not and cannot take the Bradford approach. It is not just that beggary is the badge of our past and is still all too often the present symbol of social attitudes toward us, although that is at least a part of it. But in the broader sense, we are that beggar and he is each of us. We are made in the same image and out of the same ingredients. We have the same weaknesses and strengths, the same feelings, emotions, and drives. And we are the product of the same social, economic, and other environmental forces. How much more in consonant with the facts of individual and social life, how much more a part of a true humanity to say instead, there within the grace of God, do go I. Hmm. Very beautiful and insightful and poignant way uh, to on the podcast. I appreciate you reading that for us. I think that summarizes everything. It really does. And I think that summarizes the basic philosophy of blindness um, that we all ought to have. It comes down to that. I, I have the joy of being able to use that when I end a lot of my speeches. Um, and I hope it, it makes people think. I think it's extremely important.
It is very important. I absolutely agree with that. And uh, I think it is a beautiful, perfect way to end your speeches and, and go ahead and uh, wrap up our podcast today. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so Michael, first of all, thank you very much for being on the life of blindness spotlight. Thank you for, for taking the time, uh, with me on the life of blindness podcast as well. I really appreciate all the time that you spent, uh, talking with me and sharing your stories and talking to us about IRA and everything. Uh, if anybody wants to get more information about yourself, get in contact with you or more information about, uh, IRA that you're working on currently, how can they do that? They can go to www.michaelhingson.com. That's www.michaelhingson.com. They can also email me at mike at michaelhingson.com, and I will do my best to answer and uh, and respond in any way that I can. So they're they're welcome to reach out, and we can always chat on the phone. I can can give them a call back if they shoot me an email. Again, Mike at michaelhingson.com. They can go to the website. And there's a lot of information there, um, including being able to order copies of Thunderdog. And if they do order a copy, um, we'll autograph it and potograph it with Roselle's paw print. So that's that's another thing that we can do. And we'll we also I also have audio books, and I'll open up the audio book and and actually um, autograph on the paper liner, um, and and we'll put Roselle's paw print on it as well. Very nice. But um, I, I hope that this has been helpful and certainly if there's anything else that we can do to assist or anyone has any questions or if you do and want to chat some more, don't hesitate. Absolutely. I appreciate that. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you, uh, Michael Hinkson, as well as Ira going forward. And uh, again, I thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure.